Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 21. Been quite a bit, I guess a few weeks now. I've missed you all, but glad to be back in 1 Samuel. I hope you're as excited as I am. The Lord's been very kind to us this morning. Love it when all the means of grace are present. It's an exciting and just a joyful day to, to be in the house of the Lord. Let's give our attention to 1 Samuel 21. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you. And with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord, to be replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doag the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. When David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that, give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, and pretended to be insane in their hands, and made marks on the doors of the gate, and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? This is God's word to us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we tremendously grateful for this day. 
We're grateful for the means of grace, the word proclaimed, baptism and our dear brother being brought into uh, union with our church, the outward sign of union with Christ. We thank you for the Lord's Supper and all the, the many blessings that you have given us, and we ask now that would you help us. We pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us guidance by your Spirit as we look at your Word. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as you read through your Bible, you will start to see certain progressive patterns, especially when you start looking at covenant theology and the types and the shadows and all those many things. And they are progressively laid out for us. But but one in particular that I would like for us to key in on this afternoon is a time of wandering, of exile, a time of wilderness that precedes a time of rest, of settlement, of salvation. Think of it this way with me. There is suffering before there is glory. There is suffering before there is glory. And of course, the quintessential example of this in the Old Testament is the 40 years of desert wanderings before Israel found rest in the promised land. And now, as you know, there there are many other examples of this all throughout. Jacob is a great example of this. He had to work 20 years before he could return to Canaan with his family. Moses was a shepherd in Midian for almost 40 years before the Lord called him to be Israel's deliverer. Now this pattern reoccurs very often. And it does so because it foreshadows what was necessary for our Lord Jesus. Yes, our Savior, our King, our Shepherd, had to endure His time of suffering and His exile here on earth before He entered into the glory of His kingdom. Well, chapter 21 of 1 Samuel is another one of those foreshadows of Christ for us. And what we will see here is it is time for David to share in this pattern. As David had to flee Saul, he enters now into his time of wilderness, into exile. Now this narrative will teach us more about our Savior, but it will also assist us with understanding our pilgrim lives as well. This is where we get the opportunity on this side of heaven to image Christ by suffering before our glory. Well, as we saw, like I said, several weeks ago in the last chapter, Jonathan and David have made their covenant with one another. And this covenant, as you recall, officially released David from being a servant of King Saul. This means then 
that David is not a, a rebellious runaway servant. But it also means that David is now on the run. He's on the run for his life. He is a refugee in his own land. And Saul is hunting him down like an animal. Brothers and sisters, David at this point has lost his home, his house. He's been thrust out of his job. He's been thrust out with no security. And even though he is still in his homeland, make no mistake, he has become an exile. He is, at this juncture, a wilderness wanderer. Now, one of the features, one of the key features of this wilderness period is that this is now a time of testing. Wilderness tests and tries a person to show what they are made of. It could be a time of purification, a time of maturing. And as we know, tough times can be kind of like physical exercise. It, it does make you stronger. It can force you to grow up, to become more responsible, to become mature. And so this wilderness period is a testing of David. And as I'd like to remind you, God said the next king had to be a man after his own heart. He had to be a better king than Saul. And so, this is the question I'm going to ask of you. And I don't want you to answer it too quickly. Is this true of David? Is he a better king? Will he succeed? Let me ask it this way. Will he succeed in being the righteous king where Saul failed? For the king that Israel really needs... I can say it this way, the king that we need has to be righteous. And so this exile of David is testing to see, is he the upright king? Through this narrative, and we know the answer, but through this narrative we will begin to see glimpses of a better king. Of a better king who is truly righteous. Well now that David has said his cheerful goodbye to Jonathan, he is on his own. And not only this, but we see that David had to leave with no supplies on him. It's kind of like one of those survival TV shows, you know, where they drop you out in the middle of nowhere and you've got no supplies. David has been dropped off and he has nothing, and so he needs to pick up some supplies. And so he heads a few miles south of Gibeah where um, he took leave of Jonathan to the priestly city of Nob. Now, it's not entirely clear here, but it seems that the tabernacle has now been set up in Nob. And so the priest Ahimelech, which is the grandson of Phinehas, is serving the Lord there. Now, it's striking that Ahimelech sees David, and what is the first response? Do you see it? He is afraid. He's trembling. According to verse 1, Ahimelech trembles at the sight of David, particularly because David is alone. There's no men with him. Of course, David quickly calms Ahimelech down by telling him that 
He's on a top secret mission, an urgent mission from the king. Note how he says it in verse 2. And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Essentially, David says it was so urgent that he had to leave with no provisions, and that he is going to meet up with his men later on. Brothers and sisters, we're going to call this what this is right now. This is a lie. This is a deception. If David is being tested, his first act doesn't seem to pass muster. Now, the text here doesn't necessarily cast David's deception here in a negative light. And we really need to slow down here, and I want us to think carefully about this situation First, I want us to discuss warfare ethics concerning honesty. Warfare ethics concerning honesty. You see, in warfare, the normal rules for honesty is not exactly enforced. That is, you are not obligated to tell your enemy the full truth of your plans. Why? Think about this. Lives are on the line, and secrets are kept as a key weapon in war. And as far as David knows, Ahimelech is on Saul's team. In fact, Ahimelech's name means, my brother is the king. And so Ahimelech would naturally naturally be loyal to King Saul. In fact, he's kind of like Saul's chaplain, so to speak. And so, if David is fully honest, it could cost him his life. And yet, in David's deception, there is a deliberate ambiguity that makes us wonder about David's real intention. Note how he, in verse 2, he never says the name Saul. He only says The king commanded me. Now, of course, Ahimelech hears this as referring, and of course thinks he's referring to Saul. But David could mean it to refer to someone else. Think about this with me for a moment. Could David be referring to the Lord? He is, after all, the anointed one. He just spent time with Samuel. Jonathan promised to help David come to the throne. David then is self-consciously aware that God will help him to become king. David then is not just running for his life, brothers and sisters. He's seeking his kingship in accordance with God's will. Yes, he is still deceiving Ahimelech. But we get the hint that David is speaking a deeper truth. He is on a mission on behalf of the divine king. Now David quickly gets to his request. He needs some bread, some food, and he has none with him. And he's going to starve if he doesn't get some right away. He needs some sustenance. He needs something to eat. And so Ahimelech though he doesn't have any common bread, but he does have something on hand. 
holy bread. Now, common bread is food that a layperson can eat, while holy bread is food that only belongs to the tabernacle. It being holy means that it is the Lord's, and that also means that only priests can eat of it. This is actually a very explicit law found in Leviticus 22, where it says a layperson shall not eat of a holy thing. And to do so is, listen to this, to profane the holy things of God. And my point is this, that this would be a very serious sin. So this is a very real problem, which is strictly forbidden to David, listen to me, as a layperson. It is stricken to David as a layperson, which is strictly forbidden to all in that regard. So Ahimelech, though, quickly offers up an exception to the law. Note verse 4 with me. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. And he says this, if the young men have kept themselves from women. He says, if you and your men have kept yourselves from women, then you can have the holy bread. So why does Ahimelech do this? What is the basis for his exception to God's law? Well, naturally, we would think that since it is a life-threatening situation, that is, David will starve without food, that there would be some exception, and, and, and therefore Elimelech makes an exception to the law in order to save David's life. That, that could be part of it, but there's more here. The text takes us in actually a different direction. In his answer, David confirms that he and his men have kept themselves from women. In fact, this is shorthand for saying that they are ritually pure. In fact, this is David's customary practice. Every time he goes out on a mission, even if it's a common journey, he and his men keep themselves pure and their vessels holy. Now, this practice reflects how going into battle was doing the Lord's work. And we're, once again, we're, we're, we're not talking about geopolitical war in our day. We're talking about the nation of Israel during this time, okay? It was considered holy war, and we talked about that at length when we were in Judges. And my point is this, that soldiers during that time would have to have consecrated or purified themselves before going into battle. But David's key point comes in the last line of verse 5, and unfortunately the ESV doesn't do a very good job here. What, What David says here is this, How much more here today when the journey is holy along with the vessel. See, the, the point that David is making is that his journey today is a holy one. He keeps pure on a common mission, but listen to me, today he is on a holy journey. David may be running for his life, but he is self-conscious, he is self-aware that he is on a holy mission. Therefore, There's a sacredness, there's a holiness to his journey. This then strengthens the idea that when he said the king sent me in verse 2, 
that he was referring to the Lord and not just Saul. Thus, the exception to the law about holy food is not so much about David's hunger, but that he is on a holy mission. David can eat the holy food because, listen to me, because he is performing a holy task for the Lord. The exception to the law then reveals, listen to me, and this is crucial, it begins to reveal David's office. That is, his identity as the anointed one. And Ahimelech gets David's point. Look at what he does in verse 6. So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. My point is this, Ahimelech gives David holy bread. In fact, as we just read, the priest gives David the bread of presence. You you may have heard it a different term. Brothers and sisters, what is the bread of presence? This is the showbread. This is truly significant then. Remember that the showbread was the twelve loaves that sat on the table within the holy place. And it symbolized the twelve tribes of Israel. The The bread was placed across the menorah so that the light of God's face could shine upon it. In short... The menorah light upon the showbread was a symbol of God's face shining upon, listen to me, His covenant people. And so what does this mean? Well, it means that in this gift, the priest is giving David a token of all of God's people, as well as a sign of God's presence and favor. This would have been, at that time, the highest symbol of covenant life. This then would would have communicated to, to David and his quest for the throne a sacred and priestly character. It reveals that covenant life will come through, listen to me, the Davidic line, the Davidic kingship. Can't help but to wonder when... David wrote Psalm 110 about the Lord making him a priest out of the order of Melchizedek. Can't help but to wonder if David wasn't thinking back to this moment with Ahimelech. You see, to eat the showbread, which was the most holy, was exclusively the right of the priest. And it was to show forth how the priesthood brought forth the covenant life between God and his people. Well, at this point in redemptive history, think about this. While on the run in exile, David has been granted this very high prerogative. At the starting point of his exile, David is given a priestly gift that marks off his kingly line as being sacred. Surely, this one one of the most remarkable foreshadowings of David and his kingship. So we should not take this chapter lightly. Well, David, he needs more than just food. So that's gift number one for the day. But he also needs another gift. He needs a weapon. 
There was such a hurry when he left running from Saul that he left his go bag. Okay? So he's got no weapons with him. And Ahimelech has no weapons available. Well, with the exception of one. Don't you love the providence of the Lord? The, solo- the sword of Goliath of all things. Now, it was common to dedicate to the Lord trophies of war. And David, at some point, must have given the sword to the tabernacle and to acknowledge that it was, listen to me, to, to acknowledge that it was the Lord that gave him the victory over the giant. We covered this in detail. Nevertheless, Ahimelech offers the sword back to David, and David gladly accepts this. And in fact, he says, there's none like it. Give it to me. You see, Goliath's sword was top quality. It was the best money could buy. Better than any lightsaber. Once again, we see massive symbolic value in the second gift as well. For Goliath's sword, I want to remind you, is an emblem that the battle, the battle belongs to the Lord. That He can save by few or by many, even by a sling or a stone. The sword recalls that the Lord was with David to work salvation for His people. And so again, David begins his wilderness wanderings with a symbol of God's presence. The Lord is at David's right hand. The Lord is his strength and power to save. And so from this little scene in Nob, it becomes clear that David has become well-equipped for his exile time. Through the priests, the Lord arms David with a sacred calling by giving him holy bread. And then, with the sword, a reminder of God's presence to save. Brothers and sisters, David at this point might be by himself, but make no mistake, he is not alone. The Lord is with him. David is on a sacred mission toward the throne. He is nourished by the holy bread of the covenant, and he is armed with the mighty sword that reminds us of God's victory. Presently, in our redemptive narrative here, David would have been, think about this with me, and I want to remind you, he would have been a teenager on the run, running for his life, a teenager by himself. But these gifts foreshadow the great things yet to come. And it's a good thing that the Lord equipped David so well, for as soon as he leaves Nob, he finds himself face to face with death. You see, David flees to the Philistine city of Gath. Now, why David goes to the Philistines seems odd to us, but, but this is, was actually a common thing to do. You see, if you're a high political official in trouble in your own country, you could go to a neighboring country and get political asylum. As the saying goes, the enemy of your enemy is your friend. So to find refuge out, uh, uh, um, out of the reach of Saul, this would have made sense. And yet, David picking Gath of all places. It does seem a little bit foolish. 
I'd like to remind you, for Gath was Goliath's hometown. That's right. David is now marching. and you, I, I love seeing that scene, right? David is marching. He's got Goliath's sword on his back, and he's just walked into Gath. How in the world would David think that he would not be recognized? David's wisdom seems to be lacking a little bit here. And of course, the officials of Achish, they immediately recognize who David is. They even know the song about David. Note verse 11 with me. 11 with me. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? That's interesting, isn't it? They already acknowledge him to be king. Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens thousands. Interesting. The, the officials interpret the song the same way that Saul did. For as we just read, they, they called David the king of the land. Why? Well, you've got to see, David's victory of ten thousands declares his royal destiny. David is the king who slain myriads of Philistines. Well, this blows David's cover, and now it puts David's life into jeopardy. Note how what it says that David is in their hands in verse 13. David is in handcuffs. He has just been brought before King Achish. Real quick, depending on your translations, this is Abimelech. Do you guys know Psalm 34? We don't have time today. And if I was able to take Psalm 34, David talks about this situation. So this would be him before Abimelech or Achish in this case. Okay, The officials clearly think that that Achish should kill David. And it's no wonder that the text says right here that David is very afraid. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't get much worse than this. Your cover is blown. You're in enemy territory. You are under arrest. You, are strand, you stand before Goliath's king, guilty with Goliath's sword strapped to your back. Talk about getting your hand caught in the cookie jar. Well, David does the only thing at this point that he knows what to do in this kind of situation. He acts crazy. He pretends to go insane. Note verse 13. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. David did a really good job here. He must have. He goes into convulsions and he drools like a bulldog. Drawing on doors and walls is always a bad sign. And yes, David does play the madman. And I imagine he would have gotten like, what? I, you guys, I'm not a Hollywood guy. What's those awards? What is that? Is that an Oscar? Is that what that, man, he would have got, he would have got an Oscar for this one. I mean, Academy Award winning for being insane. It must have been pretty convincing. Look at what King Achish says in verses 14 and 15 with me. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And so what we have is Achish is fully persuaded. In fact, he chews out his own servants and he speaks to them like little children. He says, 
You can see that David is crazy. Why in the world would you bring him to me? What? Do I need to pay for another madman? Get him out of here. And of course, this saves David's life. The Lord used David's performance to save him from what looked to be a hopeless and impossible situation, chained before a king who is your enemy. Day one of David's exile, and the Lord is already saving him from death. And with this narrative, we can see another wilderness pattern. And we see two beautiful gifts that have been given In these two brief episodes we have looked at this afternoon, a contrast has been created for us, and it's one that we should think about. In Ahimelech's two gifts, we can see that there is an an impressive majesty to this coming Davidic kingship. There is a sacred and a priestly character to this Davidic kingship. David gets to eat the showbread, and strapped to his back is the sword that pointed to the Lord's salvation over Israel's enemy. Well, this, of course, prefigures the majesty of Christ's kingship. And I'd like to remind you that Christ is the true Melchizedek, the forever priest and king. Jesus was armed with the power to God, the power of God to save. In fact, in Matthew 12, when Jesus refers back to this episode about David eating the holy bread, what does Jesus prove? Well, it says that the Son of Man is what? Do you remember? The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Partaking of the holy and being guiltless demonstrated his majestic identity and the office of Christ. Now in the context, Jesus is arguing in particular with the Pharisees about the Sabbath. But the point is the same. To eat of holy food when you are not a priest. Or that priest work on the Sabbath. They reveal... The same point for us. They reveal that the person is doing the holy work of the Lord and that there is a priestly character to their office. So by this term, Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus is doing two things. He is saying, I am the lawgiver. But more so than that, He's saying, I am the Holy One who fulfills the Sabbath, who fulfills the law. He is the Melchizedek priest who performs the sacred work to bring about what? Covenant life. And yet contrasted with the majesty that is revealed in David. The lofty and anointed one has been brought low. And suffered. Christ Jesus, even though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be a thing to be grasped. Jesus took on the form of a servant, he took on an added nature 
and was like us. Jesus never pretended to be insane, but he was accused of being crazy. In John 7, when the people didn't understand what he was saying, what did they call him? Do you remember? They said, you're a demon. In verse 20, you have a demon. So essentially they're saying, hey, you're crazy. Yes, the crowd thought Jesus was a madman. Even his brothers did for a time. You know, this is a reason that calling a person mad or a lunatic is not right. This can be a deep insult. And it was an insult that was laid upon our Lord. Imagine being the all-knowing Son of God and the people you have come to save is calling you insane. Jesus spoke the truth. He is the Word to them. And it was laughed at as being nonsense. Jesus preached the healing words of eternal life, but the people scorned His words, listen to me, like poison. Yes, Christ was the majestic one who became low. He not only endured His wilderness period, but He bore the reproach and the scorn of men. Yes, Christ became low, listen to me, and He did it for you. Out of love for you, the eternal Son of God became man. He took the form of a servant, obedient unto death on a cross. He was rich, but He became poor so that we might be rich in Him. And so, yes, your majestic high priest offered Himself up as a sacrifice Brothers and sisters, there's no greater gift than this. That the righteous one, that the holy one, that he who had no sin became sin so that you might become the righteousness of God in him. And since Christ was made like us in every way except sin, so also now it is our honor to imitate him. Yes, Christ's call to us to follow Him is going to be first a pattern of suffering and then glory. Paul, the Apostle, says this in Romans 8, verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, listen to this, provided we suffer with Him in order that we might also be glorified in Him. Christ bore the cross. Christ bore the cross, and we follow Christ by bearing our cross. And one of the splinters of our cross is the reproaches of the world. We hear Christ mocked regularly. Just turn on the TV, you know what I'm talking about. The world laughs at the gospel, and they call it the craziest of ideas. Our most beloved Savior, our dearest treasure of the gospel, is ridiculed and He is scorned. The holy gospel is profaned in our midst, 
And this hurts and it should bother us. If anyone calls your mom a name, well, we, both, we all know, those are fighting words. And this is how this should feel to us. When the world heaps insults upon our saving Lord and His gospel. But brothers and sisters, our Lord has told us, listen to me, not to retaliate. We do not repay evil for evil. Rather, we are called to love our enemies. To repay evil with good. To bless those that curse you. This is not easy. In fact, in the last couple weeks, I would like to ask, have we prayed for Hamas and the Palestine people as much as we have the Israelites? Are you praying for your enemy? Both need Christ. The Palestinian and the Israelite. Are you praying for your enemy? Both need Christ and both need the gospel. And this is what our Lord, our Savior, and our King calls us to. This is an example of how we follow Christ in whose mouth there was no deceit. Who prayed for those who were literally crucifying Him. Father... Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Brothers and sisters, may we presently know that our sufferings in the hand of our triune God is molding us to be more like Christ. May we rejoice knowing that Christ has entered into His glory And I say this because our present sufferings do not compare to the glory that Christ has for you. For our King keeps us for nothing less than our eternal Sabbath rest. Christ, the greater David, our King has earned for you heaven as your prophet, as your king, as your priest. And so we love him. And we do so because he first loved us.